Hello and welcome to this episode of The Pod Presents Primarily Context-Based. This podcast is a collaboration between CTO Craft and Skiller Whale, and it was inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow, where questions have to have a single right answer, and the questions can be closed and archived because they're considered primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer, and they are primarily context-based. And in this podcast, we're going to take one of those questions, talk about a range of answers and the context that makes them appropriate. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO of Skiller Well. We do live team coaching for tech teams, which means individually personalized, hands-on sessions with a live expert delivered remotely in one-hour chunks. I've been a CTO and a tech leader for the last 10 or so years. I've run dinners for tech leaders for three or four years now. I've also been a coach to CTOs. And one thing I've seen is that the same questions come up again and again, but with different answers every time because context is critical. Today, we are going to be talking about the question, should you hire the best person for the job? And I am delighted to be joined by Zoe Cunningham, not least because Zoe used to be my boss back in the day. 15 years ago or something. Zoe is the director at Software, and I'm really pleased that you're here with us, Zoe. Uh, Hi, Howell. I'm very excited to be here, and I'm very excited about the topic because I couldn't agree more with the whole premise of your podcast that the way you've got a very nice way of putting it, that that it's context-based. But for me, the way I describe is everything you do in software is super complex. So there's just always lots and lots of moving parts and lots of things to consider, which is essentially the same way of saying what you say on the podcast. And I think hiring or anything to do with people, even more so. Right. And I think that's it. Software by comparison can look quite simple in its problem solving, even though obviously it clearly isn't. (laughs) On an an absolute level, software can be very complex. But humans are so multifaceted, right, that all of the work we do that involves management and leadership is even more contextual, even more depends on the situation and the people that you're you're working with. Yeah, exactly. And so, I, th- I mean, you've, you've already taken us very nicely into this this topic of should you hire the, the best person for the job? Now, I mean, an, an initial part of that, I feel like most people would say, Yes, you should. (laughs) So I feel like we should unpack this a little bit because most of the words in there, I think you might disagree with, like maybe you shouldn't always be hiring. Maybe best isn't always a a sort of a widely uh, agreed upon term. There's not necessarily consensus there. So maybe you could start by talking about this question and, and why you why you wanted to talk about that on the, on the episode. Absolutely. So I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think that this is a great question because the answer sounds so obviously like it should be yes. And I feel that it's even like a common phrase that we just use all the time, like hiring the best person for the job. We need to get the best person for the job. Who's the best person for the job? It's um, kind of wired into how we think. And you're right, there are so many different reasons why the answer could in fact be no. Um, And the first word that I think is worth unpicking is probably best, because this is one of the, the, 
I suppose facets of hiring that I have found very frustrating listening to other people talk about hiring or set out what they want to achieve. And that's this idea that, in fact, there's a particular phrase that I really dislike, which is this concept of lowering the bar. And the reason I dislike this so much is because it's essentially analogizing hiring a super complex, nuanced, multi-dimensional decision to a high jump where it's literally one dimension and one number and your goal is to get over, you know, there is no context in high jump in terms of score. You've, you've, you know, you, you jump at a certain number and that's it. So for me, as soon as someone says, we don't want to lower. So the phrase usually comes up in the context of diversity as well, right? And well, of course, we want to hire people from unrepresented groups, but we don't want to lower the bar. And it just makes me want to jump up and go, you know, jump up and down and go, where is this bar? What bar are you talking? Are you doing different hiring to me? You know, uh, we're looking at a group of individuals with very different skill sets and different aptitudes, um, some of which will fit with different aspects of the job better than others and there's always there's always going to be different ways for any reasonably sophisticated job which is all technology jobs there's going to be more than one flavor of how you do the job it's not going to be you're not going to be doing a totally different job but you might be doing it in a slightly different way using a slightly different skill set from someone else and that's okay and it's certainly not a like for like comparison it's much more complex than that yes so i've seen i've seen the same thing i've seen it a lot with early stage companies where it's less about diversity and or inclusivity or equity and it's about the appearance of brilliance and so often even the last part for the job gets removed and people will talk about we only hire the best people and what they really mean is we hire people whose CVs show long stints at a very well-known tech company. They, they worked at Facebook slash Meta for 10 years. They are one of the best people. They were, they led on important programs at Amazon. And those people are obviously brilliant at, at their work in those jobs, I assume, if they you know were there for, for a long time and got promoted. But the idea that they are almost objectively the best because they were important and powerful and successful at a big company. And therefore, they will have the same success at your team of three in your new company that doesn't really know what it needs to build yet and has no resources with which to do very much at all. Seems unlikely to me. And I think it's that same thing that it's almost reducing the entirety of the, the complex decision of hiring or of, uh, of hiring all of those different dimensions down to a single one. Which, you know, I don't know what that one would be. Can manage projects with this much budget, maybe. And the, the bar is this many millions of dollars. This person is over the bar because they've been a big deal at a big company. Therefore, they're going to be brilliant in our company. And I don't think it's true. Well, this actually is the second thing that uh, I get quite exercised about. So... The thing that leaps out at me when you say someone has been in this role at 10 years for Facebook, therefore they're amazing, is, well, what were they 10 years ago? Because for me, I feel like 
that has allowed people to see their skill set and abilities. And in particular, they must have had the skill set to be able to grow and develop over those 10 years. And that was present at the start, but people seem to only suddenly be able to recognize and see it now that they have got this kind of almost like a sticker, right? You know, the sticker of this job for 10 years. And I think that's incredibly, just an incredibly limiting way to look at people. And actually, hiring tech people is hard because they are in such demand. So I think if you want to be making the best hiring decisions that you can, which I do think you want to do, (laughs) um, or good hiring decisions, right, then finding a way to um, see skills and aptitude in people who haven't yet got the sticker, I think is extremely valuable. So I think you're right that, that it's that hiring is generally hard. <laughs> I think that one of the things we are generally very bad at, in particular when it comes to hiring, is assessing velocity rather than position. We find it very easy to look at someone's CV and say, ah, yes, this person has worked in C-sharp for five years. They are therefore a five-year C-sharp developer. Like that's, they have led a team for this many years. They are therefore a this good at team leading thing. And we look for these signifiers of ability and skill. And we say, great, this is, this is where they are. They, they have, they have cleared the bars on every axis. If you're lucky and you're thinking in a multi-dimensional way, not just in a single bar, they, they have cleared all of the, the bars I need them to find. We are generally very bad at finding a way of taking people and saying, I don't care where this person is right now. How good are they at learning? How good would they be at this, this new thing? If, if the company suddenly changed and we were doing something wildly different, we stopped using strongly statically typed programming languages and instead used a pure functional one. How well would this person be able to make that transition? How, how good are they at learning? That's a very useful thing to know, and we suck at knowing it until we've worked with someone for a long time and seen it. Or, well, I say we. I don't think everyone sucks at knowing it, but I think it's, it requires hard work and thought, and not everyone puts that hard work and thought in. And I think it requires um, a real understanding of people. And I, it, it's a generalisation, but... I I think reasonably true that in the tech industry, we perhaps don't develop our people skills as early and as deeply as some people in other industries or in other specialisms. And I think that if you have a really good understanding of people, a lot of this becomes a lot more obvious. So the other thing that really strikes me when we're talking about predicting where people will go is that for me, that's that even that is depersonalizing people to a certain extent, right? And thinking that of them as a, a graph of skills over time, when people um, have their own ideas and opinions and drivers of what they want to achieve, what they enjoy, what they value. And I think that is one of the best predictors of where they're going to get to and how they're going to develop. So the difference between 
you know, two people with the same base aptitude at programming, whatever, whatever that is, not, not that I'm saying that exists, but for the sake of this uh, conversation, um, the person who delights in challenging themselves with learning software techniques and making things work is going to progress exponentially faster than someone who considers it a chore and something they would rather be doing something else. Like the difference is going to be immense in that kind of job. Um, So I think that there's also this We've got these other things we can use when dealing with people. We don't just have to look at what they did for five years or where they've worked, or we can ask them and talk to them and and use our little bits of our people. But I haven't got a very good model for how our brains work, but I feel like there's definitely, we've got our numbers bit where we can add up all our numbers and do programming, but we've also got this kind of people bit where sometimes you just get loads of information back from people that you're not necessarily able to codify, but that's how we communicate. And and some people are better at this than I am. <laughs> you're sort of building a mental model for for a person almost, like uh, that, that you have that kind of nuanced understanding of them that you hold, that's not just this person is, you know, so good at that and wants to go here, but it's more like the way this person thinks about problems is um you know they like to experiment around the problem first and the way this person thinks about their career is they they seem to really care about stability and that's important to them and you you mean all of that kind of nuanced thinking that helps you understand someone a bit more holistically than you know this person is a level three programmer grade f exactly exactly one of the things i found with hiring in particular is when people start doing it for the first time. So I find myself often being asked about how do I hire for such and such a role? And I feel like the answer is always disarmingly simple because I think people's idea is that there's this kind of, this like gauntlet of challenges that has to be prepared and sort of catch people out. And how can I know if someone's a really good coder, like I've seen their CV how, you know, do I set them like foobar type problems? Do I set them a like interesting maths puzzle? Or do I just, you know, at one extreme, see how firm their handshake is? You know, it's, I think people expect there to be this kind of secret formula. And I think the the surprising revelation is always work out what the job is going to involve and get them to demonstrate that and then think, you know, essentially as close as possible simulate what it would be like if they were doing the job and see if they're doing it well and if they're not probably wasn't going to be a great fit and if they are then it probably would be a great fit and so if your your simulation of doing the job is like well put it like this no one's simulation of doing the job is like i want them to sit there and just have five years of c-sharp experience (laughs) yeah exactly exactly that's massive value but you do want someone who can maybe structure a bit of C-sharp to answer a problem or to to perform some bit of functionality or fix some bug that's interesting and nuanced and requires you to have a bit of understanding about how C-sharp works. And I think if you can build that into uh, an interview and uh, a hiring model, suddenly the whole thing seems a lot simpler. Yeah, and actually... 
actually, I think one of the things that always surprises me, having come from a small software development agency where we always wanted to think everything through from first principles and know the reasons behind things and decide how we were going to hire ourselves and have our own process and our own acronyms and, you know, our own methodology of hiring. Actually, what I find the, the older and older that I get is that the, there is so much value in the standard ways that things are done. <laughs> And actually, people don't do interviews because they're lazy or they there's they do it because there's actually so much value you can get from talking to a human being and talking about their past experiences and talking about what excites them and talking about what they would want to get from working with you. Um, that's actually super valuable. And I think that even for technical um I mean, if I was hiring a coder, I'd want to uh, see how they engage with the technical challenge for sure. Um, but I think there's also so much value in saying, tell me about your biggest challenge. You know, all the interview cliches, right? It's actually very interesting to know how someone deals with challenges. Um, and as an interviewer, well, you know, when I was younger, I always thought interviewers was like trying to catch you out. But actually... It's just a really interesting thing to talk about. And I think like you and I could have a very interesting conversation about what's, what's our biggest challenge and how did we get over it? You know, like it's, yeah. Or I suppose for a lot of roles, you want someone who's interested in that, right? <laughs> mm, I think people, people who are engaged and care about the kind of work and are going to be passionate about the work that they're doing is really valuable. And I think that can come from... A, a proper conversation more than more than anything else right because so much of so much of it is about fit at the end of the day i don't this and this is one of my beefs with the idea of hiring for the best person for the job is i think it really it loses a lot of the nuance in it and it loses the idea that really this is a two-way thing and it's about fit it's not we are looking for this this person is the best person we're just going to like yank them into the company it's about what they are looking for and what we are looking for in this kind of messy like middle middle bit where no one is quite right for each other but we can kind of make things work and i don't know but there might be trade-offs on both sides but ultimately there's a really productive relationship to be had in working with this person and they'll be happy here and all of that together that I think goes into hiring. Yeah, exactly. And remembering that a relationship will always be unique depending on which the two parties were. So if you hire someone different, even if they've got the same skills on paper, you'll have a different, they'll contribute to your organisation in a different way because they're a different person. Um, I've just thought of the other thing we really, the other problem with the question, should you hire the best person for the job, that we yeah. really haven't discussed in detail is this is this concept of growth over time and that if you're hiring someone you you hope i think almost everyone hiring right you hope to have a reasonably long relationship you're not trying to just oh i'm talking about the relationships where you're hoping to hire someone and they will stay with you right and that means that if you've hired a level a, a five years experience developer today next year there'll be a six years experience and the year after there'll be a seven years experience or or will they or how will they develop and how will they grow and how do they want to grow and how how does that fit with what you're going to need 
or what you anticipate that you might need because the future is obviously totally uncertain. And prone to evolution, right? I think particularly at the moment, predictions for the next 10 years are massive changes in what industry requires from from workforces. Um, when we were chatting about this before, I thought I was saying something very interesting because, um, you know, the role of a prompt engineer is now a thing that exists and people get hired for. And you, you very gently trumped me in that because, well, you, you tell the story, Zoe. Yeah, so... Um... Uh, my husband is actually the CEO of a business called Autogen AI, which started, I don't know, I guess like 18 months ago. Um, so they so they work with using large language models to uh, help people write um, bids and tenders, essentially. Uh, it's an area where there's a lot of language to be produced and uh, using this idea of um, a model plus a human. So it's not saying you press the button on computer and it does it all for you. It's about working this augmented intelligence of, of working with a human. Um, so when Autodeno AI started, it was before all the hype. And so there was, there was a lot of people going, I don't know what this is. Surely it's never going to work. And then however many months ago, chat GPT was released and suddenly the whole world is talking about um, chat GPT. So it's been really interesting seeing those different perspectives. But my husband hired um, what he believes is the first prompt engineer hired in the UK 18 months ago. So yeah, and 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 it's notable because there were no prompt and there was no job to do that before. And yet it is immediately, immediately that the need has arisen. It's an extremely valuable skill set. But you can't train for it. You can't have, you can't put on your hiring form, I need someone with three years experience in prompt engineering and a degree in prompt engineering from a, from a university, you know, because that doesn't exist. Right. And I, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the same tweets I have where people get contacted by recruiters and they're saying they're looking for someone with seven years experience with a framework that was released four years ago, that kind of, of thing. Um, and because you can't, think about those kind of new roles in terms of years of experience, you are forced to look for aptitude, willingness, passion to, to learn, which is probably what we should be looking for anyway, right? If you, if you anticipate change and evolution, unless you're doing something that's where your needs are known to be very stagnant, you want people who, who can sort of roll with that, which comes back to this idea of the job, the best person for the job. The job is kind of an ill-defined thing, right? Because th this is the point you were making, Zoe, because the job today versus the job in a year could be wildly different. Yeah, the job in a year when we don't even know what it is. Right, right, right. And this is one of the, the kind of big production, big, um, right, this is one of the big pr predictions for the future of work, right, is that there are going to be an increasing number of jobs, which today we just wouldn't even be able to predict the job title for. So data scientist is a term that turns out to have been a, around since the 1970s, the idea of data science, someone at Chicago University started talking about it then. And then in the last, what, 10 years, maybe a bit less than that, is now so well established and understood. You know, people, lots of software leaders have been setting up their data science teams, hiring data science roles. There are organizations which will take software developments and software developers and teach them the fundamentals of data science to go and get 
if they'd signed this job. And this is just would not have been a thing previously. And of course, the the organisations that do best from that that trend are the ones who were finding the people who could become data scientists and who wanted to learn those things without having to. I don't know, pluck those people out of the market, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And this is a little bit tangential, but this is another one of my pet peeves. <laughs> I feel like I'm really ranty today. I'm not quite sure why. but um, It's great. It's not coming across <laughs> that way either. So yeah. go for it. Well, everyone's talking about the kind of eradication of of white collar jobs. So the idea that maybe uh, doctors could be replaced by, you know, some some of the work that doctors do or some of the work that lawyers do. And people frequently extend this out to computer programmers and they say, no, no, the large language model is going to replace, you know, or, or artificial intelligence is going to replace software developers. And I find that a really astonishing concept because it just makes me want to ask, well, who's building this software that's replacing the software developers? And from my perspective, and certainly this has been borne out because people have been saying this for like 10, 20 years, I think the demand for software developers is nowhere near its peak because the more more complex our software becomes, the more applications there are for it, the more scope there is to do incredible, exciting things that enrich our lives as human beings. And therefore, the more people with our unique people, creative skill sets um, and judgment and uh, decision-making skill sets, right, um, the more people there are needed to make these things happen. So I'm very much like a tech optimist on that front. I think so long as we can learn, that's that's the key thing. So long as we can learn whatever new skills are required. So people people who spend more time than me thinking and predicting about the, the future of work talk about this as a, a fourth industrial revolution. And the general pattern in previous ones has been not that people lose their jobs or that jobs are jobs are lost, but that essentially those jobs get replaced with jobs that need a different skill set. So a relatively recent one was the introduction of ATMs, automatic color machines, into banks. And people were worried that the people who were working in the banks would be completely out of a job because we wouldn't need people to hand over the cash at the counter. And instead, what happened was that those people got retrained to sell more sophisticated products. So that enabled them to sell like interesting new kinds of bank account or mortgages, all of which meant that essentially the bank being able to save money on the dispensing of cash meant they could spend more money on more interesting work. And for me, that seems really exciting, the idea that as as humans, we get to spend less time on the work that's equivalent to like pushing cash to people and more time on the work that's like having a conversation and doing something that involves human skills like empathy and customer customer service. And I feel like the same could be true with any automation that comes into technology. Like some of the exciting examples I've seen have been like, hey, integrate with this API. Like this, these are the docs for such and such an API. I need some code that can do this with the API and that code gets generated for you in whatever language you choose. And that to me seems amazing because as a a developer, that was the worst part of my job was like, I need to integrate with this API. And now I just get like 
the, that bit of code gets written for me and all of the interesting bits, the fitting it together, the business decisions, the, the architecture, I get to do those. And I don't, I haven't yet seen that level, seen that level of automation be, be possible. So hopefully it, it means a more exciting future for software developers. Yeah, exactly. And also taking a higher level view. So not spending your time writing kind of nuts and bolts code, but looking at this basic offering of nuts and bolts code from a large language model and improving it and rewiring it and saying, oh, in our case, this bit goes here and that will make Mm. it function better overall. Like, isn't that more fun? And even, so I have been um, using... uh, language models a little bit for some writing. And what I found is that it's really helping me in this difference between a blank page and editing a first draft. So even if the first draft that you would get back from a piece of software is not something you would want to publish, editing that to become something that you do can feel more achievable (laughs) when I'm in a not very creative day than writing one from scratch. And I think there's so many exciting applications for coding there as well. Like, actually, I don't know how to start to approach this program. Well, actually, I can just knock up some code and improve Mm. on it or be inspired by it and throw it away and start again because the time cost of doing that is so cheap. Right. And generally, curation is much easier than creation, right? It's, it's much easier to take, to take something that exists and improve it than to start doing something afresh. I saw a piece of advice in the last week uh, that said, always leave your code in a broken state. If you, you don't have much time to, to develop, leave it so it's always broken. So then the thing that you're going to come back and do is fix the bug that you've left, i.e. an act of curation, it's then much easier to get into what you were doing and kind of carry on from there than coming to something that works and be like, right, where do I, where do I start now? Mm. And maybe that is enabled for us by some of these newer, newer tools. Yeah, it's like your loose thread that you're going back to to unwind everything. Right, right. Remember that phrase as well. That's a fantastic phrase that curation is, better, is easier than cre- um, creation. I think that's mm. really neat. One of the things, one of the things we talked about before is the idea that as leaders, as people in technology and as leaders, we often see ourselves as very malleable and capable of growth. And often when we think about uh, the people who report up to us and the people we're looking at hiring, we can see them as being almost static. And I think that comes into this idea of hiring the best people for the job is almost that we're looking at the requirements we have for the role. We're looking at the where people fit on those requirements and saying, who is going to be best? When we look at ourselves, we think of ourselves as kind of constantly growing and evolving and getting better at what we do. Do you Have you seen that too, or is that just my imagination? I think it's a a very real challenge. So I think the fact that as human beings, we're always coming at things with different perspectives is one of the, well, actually, it's a great blessing and benefit if we can use it (laughs) rather than Mm. just like butting up against each other as as a result. But something that I've learned is that 
um, being the age I am now and the point in my career, everything seems a lot more possible to me than it did when I was starting out. And I think one of the reasons for that is that I have been lucky enough to be able to develop my career and achieve things that I thought weren't possible. For example, in um, 2012, when I was appointed as the managing director of software, which when I started in the company, I was like, oh my God, but that's such a big, you know, the most important person in the company, you know, I could never do that. And actually to go through that journey yourself and to realize that not only have they given you the job, but you are actually delivering it. is uh, really changes your perspective about what's possible. And I have to say that I see the challenge a little bit differently from you, that I see everyone beneath me as malleable because, um, or, you know, everyone earlier on their journey is malleable because I know that I was because I have the proof of it. And I find the challenge can come in convincing other people of that. That's not in their worldview yet because they haven't done it yet. But it's easier for me to see what is possible for them. And actually, I think that's when things like mentoring can work so well, because you have someone who, because of their life experience, can see what's possible for you and help you to see that too. Um, And therefore help you to get there in a way that wasn't possible on your own. I should say that for for my part, I 100% people think people are malleable and can grow and change and to the extent that you know skill a whale was really started off the back of that belief that really what people need is opportunities to grow in in the ways that their company needs right that there's this 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 sweet spot between people who want to get better and the company wanting them to get better in a certain way and enabling that to happen as efficiently as possible is this kind of all-round great thing to happen win-win i'm so big on win-win a win-win i was i was sort of trying to avoid the phrase because it felt like so oh, okay i, I love know. it i love it <laughs> no, win-win. No, let's go win win for everyone <laughs> a, a win all the way around and obviously um I, I i'm a big believer in learning myself because i'm i don't know i've sat down before and tried to enumerate all the various things i have learned at in my life and it's just I'm surrounded sitting here actually by like some electronics related stuff. There's like a soldering iron here, a multimeter over there. There's a saxophone on the floor and like a project half underway down there on the floor uh, to do with the saxophone. But learning surrounds me. And I think that I don't think I'm unique in that by any means, maybe in the saxophone bit, but like everyone has is constantly learning. I think there, even if it's people who are, you know, massive football fans, the amount that they have learned and they can tell you people who the person who scored in the last five games for their team, people are great at learning that kind of stuff that they're passionate about. What I see though, is this attitude when, when we, when people think about the teams they are running and they're hiring where the, the people in those teams and the skills they need are often like the difference between them is often considered insurmountable that i have these people who have this set of skills you know in ability space along all of these dimensions they're good at this this and that and bad at that and 3.5 out of 7 on this and i need someone who can do this therefore i'm going to go and hire them and it's that belief that people are static that i i just don't see um and i think that comes into this idea of like best person for the job sometimes you, should you hire the best person for the job? No, sometimes the best person for the job 
in as much as that makes sense, isn't going to be found by hiring. It's in the people you already have. Um, and so I think even the hiring part of that sentence, <laughs> I would, I would take some issue with because very often, you know, the people you already have are already part of the, the organization. You know, all of you, you don't have any unknowns about how they will fit in, whether they are aligned to the values and the way that you work and whether they can build relationships with other people in the company. And so sometimes the best, the best person for the job, again, caveating that bit of the phrase, um, is not found by hiring. Absolutely. Could not agree more. And I love that. So we come to the answer that the answer is no, 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 no. Should you answer hire yes. the best person for the job? No, 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 no. <laughs> yes. Possibly you should, you shouldn't hire. Possibly the best person for the job is, you know, a, the best doesn't really make sense here. Arguably, from what you've said, sometimes some of the jobs you'll need to be done are not done by humans. They'll be done by large language models. Um, and sometimes the job as a sort of static defined point in time is not the, the target to be aiming for. Yeah, absolutely. Could you talk briefly about how you've hired for ability to learn, ability to change, how you've hired people for jobs that don't exist yet? Because I think that might be the thing that's most surprising to people. Well, you say that. I mean, most of my experience is in hiring engineers. And we've used a variety of technical tests for hiring engineers, my, which I think is reasonably standard, right? However, the thing that I've learned most, the, the, the way my hiring has evolved, my hiring thinking, is what I'm looking for in those technical tests. So I think that a very basic level, your um, or a very unsophisticated level, right? You might think, well, I'm giving them the technical test to see if they can get it right. And I think that is a very poor use of a technical test because I think if you are giving someone a test that they can get right, you haven't learned very much. So where you have someone with a test outside of their um, capability or on the limits, right? Something that's really stretching them. Um, we've always at Software, we've always looked at how people engage with that and how they can work with the interviewer, you know, because there's someone else in the room too who can, who also has experience of the test, right? Um, or the, the, the problem space. Um, how can you work together to solve it? And that's a great skill set to have for programming, right? Because really, if you're if your skill set is just programming on your own, you don't really need to be part of a company or working in a team. The value you get from that is much bigger than the value of someone programming on their own. Um, so certainly my thinking first evolved in uh, the way that we discussed quite a lot that um, there's one thing to have an aptitude for problem solving and an ability to solve you know, technical, which in some ways are slightly academic kind of challenges versus having a real passion for technology and programming and building things and ideally building the thing that your company is building. So for me, that was a massive change. In, you're still giving the same test, but how you think about how people engage with it uh, has totally changed. And then the thing that, so I think that's more important than 
technical ability for, again, to assume there's one dimension to technical ability. Um, but even more so than that, the part of interviewing I now think is most valuable is seeing how people respond and behave when they are really challenged by something when they're really stuck. I don't know if you've seen that flowchart. There's this amazing flowchart of being a programmer that goes, ah, 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 like all the <laughs> way around this chart. And I was like, that is, I, I relate to that, you know, like you think programming is like all this lovely feeling of solving things, but actually it's mostly bumping up against things that don't work and constantly dealing, well, that was definitely my experience. Mm. No, no, definitely. Yeah, seeing people and having now worked with a lot of engineers, like the engineers who who just love that experience and really want to um, get stuck in, they see it as a challenge, not as an obstacle, and they get motivated by it rather than demotivated by it. I think for me, that is the number one skill set you can have as an engineer. So almost, oh look, this is another another context answer, right? You're you're giving people technical tests so that they can get them wrong. But I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. Because as you said, if they get them, if the only r way you can uh, assess it is right or wrong, you get literally one bit of data. It's a zero or it's a one. If it's about the com, if the the wrong is assumed, and instead we're looking at the conversation and the response that happens when people get it wrong, it's a much richer, much richer signal, if you like, that you get to get a sense of how people will get on in the the role. So we we at Skillwell have a a role that I think is really hard to hire for on the curriculum team, where the, the job is essentially you are going to have to take a technology and be able to write good curriculum in it. And you're going to be able to talk to experts if you need to. You can like get all of the resources under the sun. If things aren't clear to you, you can dig into them. But the, the job is very much not come in already being an expert in some technology. It's you're going to have to very quickly be able to understand things. And so our interview process for that includes a segment where people get shown something in the technology that we hope they haven't seen before and we try and work out they haven't. And then they have to talk to us about it and relay back what they've learned. And then we have kind of questions about it. And it's so it's so revealing because it's so close to the work. Um, it tells us how people will, will do when they get confronted with stuff that they haven't they haven't seen before. And when there are questions that are exposed things that are kind of difficult in that topic. The difference between people whose response is one of kind of intrigue um, or versus, I don't know, defensiveness, I guess, is feels like a good predictor of how it's going to be in their, their work because generally in our curriculum, those are the things we want to bring out. We want to be like, ah, oh, it's actually super interesting because on a Thursday in June, X is actually seven. You know, that's, <laughs> that's really useful for us to be able to see that up front. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so I think that kind of that that joy of discovery, passion for problems, is almost it's almost like a mindset thing um, that sets people in good stead for the future and for changes that happen. Um, that again, we might not be able to predict in what the job even means. I think that's a really good point for us to end on. And I want to say a big thank you to you, Zoe, for joining us and for, for sharing your wisdom. I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting. Thanks, Hal. It's been loads of fun.